meditation is a skill that can be learned like any other. But if one wants to learn a skill, as I've said already, we need patience, perseverance and determination. No skill is learned just by sitting down and doing it. Any skill that we have ever acquired in this life, whether it's reading, writing, or arithmetic, or whatever else we know, it has been done through patient repetition. Maybe you can remember learning to read and write. Patiently, it was tedious, constant repetition writing down an A hundred times. Now, of course, writing down an A is as easy as breathing. That's the same with meditation. Without that constant repetition, it won't happen. It will always remain wishful thinking, skirting the edges, getting a little glimpse here and there, but it will never be the real thing. It has to be learned just like anything else. And doing that means that one means it seriously. If one really wants to learn something, we've got to be serious about it. When we went to school, we didn't have much choice. They didn't give us any choice. We had to sit down and do it. When we went to um, tertiary education, we made the choice. Why? To make money. Here, we make a choice. Why? Because making money isn't enough. But we've got to make a choice. Nobody will meditate for somebody else. Nobody becomes wise for anybody else. We all got to do it ourselves. And the sooner we make this choice in this course, the more of a chance we've got. Make it now. Skirting the edges or doing it really. That choice is karma making. Making karma is making choices. And we are making choices from morning to night, not from night to morning. Dreaming is not karma-making. But from morning to night, we do make choices. And most of the time, if not all of the time, we're not even aware of the fact that we're making karma by every choice we make. And by making karma, we're going to get the results. There's just no way out of that one. It's cause and effect. As you sow, you will reap. It just happens. It's a law of nature. And if you like to check it out, whether this law of nature actually exists or not, you might be able to remember any particularly important happening in your life and 
find the connection, good or bad, it's possible. And when you see the connection, it may help to reinforce this very important aspect of one's life, karma mission. Every time we sit down with the intention to meditate, we make good karma. That the intention is an honorable one. Whether it's then going to work or not, that's a second consideration. That's a skill. In the one, one hand, it's a skill. On the other hand, it's the ability to let go. But an immediate result is good karma when we sit down. So we have lots of opportunity here to make good karma. We don't have to talk to make good karma. Intention is karma. Intention, or monks, I declare, is karma. Because karma, literally translated, means action. And so the Buddhist explanation was far more profound is what we intend. And what we intend, we usually intend with the mind. There is no other way to intend anything. So all our good karma is primarily made in the mind. That's where it all starts. We can then, of course, branch out to saying something or doing something. These are the next two steps. And it becomes successively heavier karma. What we think is the instigator. It's the primary uh, underlying foundation of everything that happens to us. But then, when we say it, we reinforce it, good or bad. And when we do it, we reinforce it even more. But the main focus of attention, specifically here, will have to be on the mind. And these are some of the possibilities of gaining insight. First of all, relating again to the contemplation we did, we have this opportunity here to make good karma by sitting down and wanting to do it. Then, the second thing that happens as we sit down, whether we become concentrated or not, is not even a part of the consideration yet, is then we labor the thoughts rather than thinking them continuously. The one who labels is no longer the thinker. The, label, the one who labels is the one who is the objective observer. And that means mindfulness. Objectively observing, which also means that we can objectively observe whether we have good or bad intentions. Recognition, no blame, change, 
is the formula for mindful consideration of oneself. There's no blame attached. Human beings are what they are and will always be what they are. There is the possibility of transcending it. But as we are now, there's no blame, but recognition, yes. So we have the possibility to make good karma by recognizing our good intention. You know that. Even by not recognizing it, you still make the good karma. But by recognizing it, you will know it. And we have a possibility of insight into our thought patterns when we labor. Now that insight into our thought patterns will help us to recognize that thinking just is and not necessarily meaningful. Once we have understood that completely and taken that into ourselves, as part of our wisdom, we will realize that our opinions are just opinions. They do not have a basic truth embedded in them. And we will much, we be much easier to live with because we will not always insist that our own opinions are the ones that are correct. We will find other people much easier to live with because we will know their opinions are just their opinions. There's nothing basically, fundamentally true in them. The fundamental absolute truth is one, not based on opinion. It's always based on experience. So when we realize that thinking is just an activity of the mind, and very often containing fantasy, dreams, half-baked ideas, and quite often nonsense, no sense at all, we become much more tolerant of our own mistakes and those of others, and will not insist that we must know and do know. The labeling then helps us to be an objective observer of that and to substitute. Substitution is the one important mental activity for purification. The Buddha refers to it over and over again. Substitution with opposites. And we will talk about it more and more as it becomes clearer and clearer where this path leads to and what we can do on it. Anyone can do it. It needs goodwill to want to do it. And a lack of opinion to just go ahead and do it. So when we have this ability to labor, we also have the ability to substitute because we are objectively observing the thoughts that are 
entering into our mind, unwanted, unbidden, not happiness producing, just distracting, and often quite um, unrecognizable. The substitution that takes place is to substitute with attention on the breath, obviously. We may have to do that a hundred times. That's all right. doesn't matter. <clears throat> the more often we do it, the better we can do it. That substitution is the same action of the mind as we do in daily life. When we recognize, objectively observe, that our thought is unwholesome, not beneficial, unhappiness producing, depressed, worried, fearful. Now, when we are really skilled at substitution, there comes a day when we will no longer allow any of those negative thoughts in the mind. That's why it is extremely important to learn that in the meditation process. So we have two immediate benefits from the meditation. One is the good karma, and secondly, learning to label and substitute. We have another immediate benefit, and that is an antidote for laziness and lassitude in the mind. The mind is used everybody's mind is used to just go walking, go anywhere, dream up anything. We call the mind a magician. It can do anything. Most fantastic nonsense, but also the most astounding technology. So most people's minds, when it isn't a matter of doing a job or a situation of life or death or having to prove oneself in some manner or form, most people's minds just wander off, take time out, take it easy. It's not the easy way out. It's the hard way out, because the untrained mind, the Buddha said, is our own worst enemy. No enemy can do to one what an untrained mind will do to one. No father, no mother, no best friend can do to one what a trained mind can do for one comes out of the Dhammapada, the verses of the pairs. The pairs means it's always one way, positive, the other, negative. One of the oldest collection of the Buddha saying. The untrained mind, the one that just goes off on a tangent and does whatever it pleases, seems to be the easy way out, but it's not. Because it will bring back anything. Fear, worry, dislike, envy, jealousy. 
frustration, anxiety, unhappiness. And with it will come a lack of acceptance that it is so and possibly blame. Blame for oneself and blame for others. That's what an untrained mind will do. And therefore, it is like being in a tug of war with one's own mind. One time it pulls this way, other time it pulls that, that way. So the training of the mind is the only promise and hope we have for peace and happiness within when the mind stays where we want to put it. So the mind which is lazy and full of torpor is a mind that runs off on a tangent. So every time we concentrate just for a moment we have counteracted that difficulty. Now these difficulties are no personal monopolies. They are universal and explained by the Buddha as part of being an ordinary human being. A puttajana, a worldling. Everybody's got the same problems. Which is actually quite nice. We don't have to feel particularly inept at doing what we're trying to do, nor do we have to feel separated from anybody else. Everybody's got the same problem. Which is also a reason why one can teach meditation. If it wasn't the same for everybody, one couldn't teach it. If it was a personal thing, a personal ability, a personal pathway, how could one teach it? It's universal, the mind universal, all going the same pathway. The only difference is that due to tendencies and past karma, we have more difficulties in one way and little less in another. That's the only thing that distinguishes us from each other. More hate or more greed. That's all. The people have, who have more hate find it very difficult to live with themselves and others and because of that are determined to practice. The people who have more greed are quite easy to live with are always finding a silver lining somewhere, quite pleasant actually, but no determination to practice. So each one has an advantage. It doesn't matter which one one is. The one who has hate has also greed, the one who has greed has also hate. And we don't have to feel that this is too far, uh, the explanation goes too far, because hate means not wanting, not liking, and greed means wanting and liking. It's as simple as that. What we want 
is greed. What we want to get rid of is hate. There are just two headings for what bothers us. That's all. Buddha was extremely adept at making exact and precise explanations and making it in such a manner that was concise and easy to remember. In those days, the spiritual teaching was not written down, so one simply had to remember. And if we had that same situation today, it would be better for us. We rely on books and pieces of paper. But we cannot walk around in daily life with a book in one's hand and trying to find the right page where it says when we get angry what to do. We've got to remember. And neither can we have a little piece of paper in the hand where we've written down all the difficulties we've ever had so that we don't get the same ones again. We've got to remember. So we would be greatly helped if we didn't have so many books. But this is the way we are today, so we have to take that in stride and still try to remember. That's what is important. One does remember. But unfortunately, the world has a way of dealing with human difficulties which never eliminate them. Most of the time, they superficially seem to take care of a certain difficulty, but in the end, it just comes back to the same thing. So we do need to remember the spiritual teaching. So we have, right away, good karma-making and our antidote for what is called the third hindrance, loss and torpor. Laziness, lassitude, procrastination. I'll meditate tomorrow when it's a little warmer or a little cooler. Or next year when I don't have so much to do. Or something like that. This third hindrance is compared by the Buddha to being in prison. We build our own prison. Those that are built by the government are for major crimes. We build our own prisons of the mind. And that is the simile that the Buddha gave. We have to open the door ourselves again. If we procrastinate, if we make justifiable excuses, <coughs> if we do not pull the mind together, we do not have that opportunity to live in a beautiful inner landscape rather than in an imprisoned one. Through the meditative process, we counteract this over and over again every time we sit down and try to concentrate. But we have to also reinforce it outside of meditation through mindfulness, 
for being wide awake and aware and not letting the mind wander off to its usual problems to wanting to solve those problems to its usual ideas and hopes and memories but to keep it in place where the body is if you have an opportunity today after lunch to wash dishes remember to wash dishes while washing dishes and every time you catch yourself thinking I hope I don't get that same job tomorrow or dishwashing really isn't my favorite op uh, occupation or I don't know why they have so many dishes today probably because I have to wash dishes or something of that nature remember that has absolutely no place anywhere that's fantasy the only place the mind can find is to watch the movements of the hand that's all we also break less dishes that way but that's only an extra benefit the main benefit is that we keep the mind in place so that when we do sit down again it is already in place we don't have to bring it back from somewhere from at home or from wherever we were or the last trip we took or wherever it's gone off to we already have it in place <coughs> we save ourselves <coughs> a lot of time and energy that mental energy that we save through mindfulness is best spent on concentration in meditation it needs energy mental energy to concentrate so we have three immediate benefits already when we sit down we have a fourth benefit every moment of concentration is a moment of purification <coughs> if we watch the breath without any thought we can't be negative fortunately we can't do two things at the same time with the mind we think we do we say oh leave me alone I've got ten things on my mind we don't have them simultaneously we have them in very quick succession the Buddha said we can have three thousand mind moments in the blink of an eyelid luckily we don't usually have that but sometimes it seems as if we do and then we feel that we need a holiday we actually a holiday that people need is a holiday from thinking that's what's so aggravating energy consuming so when we concentrate on the meditation subject we are purifying the more often we do it the more we purify the more the chance we have to get concentrated it isn't a thing that one can do just once in a while especially in a course one's got to try again and again and again and eventually it pays off 
the length of time that has been best individual. The Buddha said there were four kinds of people. He said that many times. In this case, it's like this. He said there are those that are practicing with a lot of dukkha. Dukkha, I explained last night. I'm not going to keep translating that. Everything that we don't like is dukkha. It's the underlying non-fulfillment and unsatisfactoriness in existence. There are those that practice with a lot of dukkha and it takes them a long time to get any results. Then there are those that practice a lot of dukkha, with a lot of dukkha, but they get results very quickly. Then there are those that are practicing with a lot of sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, pleasure, joy, and takes them a long time to get results. And then there are those that practice with a lot of sukha, and they get results very quickly. Hopefully, all of us are of the last kind, but there's no guarantee for that. That too is karmic. Whatever we've done, thought, said, all has had a residual effect in our mind. Whatever is there, that's what we have to deal with now. There's no blame attached to that. It's just a matter of patience. That's all. When we counteract the initial sloth and torpor, where the mind says, oh, I don't want to sit down now, and there's as much to me, I think I'll have a sunbath. But we do counteract it and work against it and say, no, no, I will sit down. We have disciplined the undisciplined mind. It is as if we're dealing with a small child. We are the mother and the child. The mother knows very well it's much better for us to have a meditation session than a sun bath. But the child says, but you know, the sun is very healthy too. I think I should go out in the sun. And the mother says, no, it's better to sit down. So whenever we are educating ourselves to discipline ourselves to the point where we do it in spite of different wishes, we have won a victory over our instincts. Our instincts go for physical and mental comfort, whichever way we could possibly get it. The ultimate physical and mental comfort comes through concentration, but the way there isn't all that comfortable. So when we do conquer that instinct of not doing it, we have won a victory over ourselves. And we can gain from that self-confidence. Now, every time we do that in daily life, we conquer ourselves. We have also reason to have self-confidence. We know we do not have to follow instinct. We can follow our own inner intuition of what is wise. 
in daily life, the Buddha said that the antidote for all our hindrances, and I will ex- explain all of them, are noble friends and noble conversation. And for this particular one, for this uh, sloth and torpor one, it's very important also to associate with wise people. Not only have noble friends, but associate with wise people, because they will then show us the right way. It's also important to learn more about the Dhamma, to see how thinking and viewing things differently will give us an opportunity to have a totally different inner life and inner reaction. When the mind is very slothful, when the mind is not at all inclined to concentrate, not at all inclined to pull itself together, we will have to give it something interesting to do so that it gains a bit of um, interest in what it's doing and not wanders off all the time. So at that moment, the mind is like that. (coughs) It's playing games. It's most important to not try to become calm because that can result in complete sleepiness. Unless the mind's already trained in what are called the meditative absorption, if the mind is very slothful and uh, lazy and doesn't want to really do anything, the calm meditation is not the best way to wake it up. On the contrary, it will make it fall asleep. Because this is the only thing that people usually know of not thinking the moment before falling asleep. The only moment that is known that we don't think. We can't fall asleep if we're thinking. And some people have trouble with that. They think so much that they can't fall asleep very well. But if we do have a normal sleep pattern, the last moment before falling asleep is without thinking. So the mind which is inclined at a certain time to be slothful and lazy will take it as an invitation to go to sleep because that's all it knows. So instead of trying to become calm at that time, we direct the mind towards insight. I mentioned already last night that there are only two directions, many different methods. And the one that works is the right one. And what does it mean that a method works? It has to bring calm and insight, both, not just one. Because those are working together Calm is the means, insight is the goal. Without the means, 
we can't get the goal. Whichever we do first doesn't matter. We do practice both anyway. So when we want to direct the mind towards insight, there are certain ways of doing that. So instead of trying to remain on the breath and just watch the breath in order to become calm, we notice its impermanence. Impermanence which pervades all of existence, which means us, is constantly covered over by continuity. And we don't see it, we don't want to know it, because it goes against our grain. We like to build up things nice and permanent and sit back and enjoy. The breath keeps coming. So, what's so impermanent about it? Well, just imagine that it wouldn't come for a moment or two. What would happen? Death. Finished. If it wouldn't keep coming, no life. So, each breath that goes in is finished because it has to go out now. And then the same again. Now it's finished, now it has to come in again. And because it keeps on doing that while we're alive, we pay absolutely no attention to that, that we are dependent upon a totally impermanent intake of air for our lives. We really don't want to know. Because if we do know, and make, make it a really profound understanding, it will show us to ourselves in a totally different light. We won't look even one bit as important as we thought we were. We are depending upon totally impermanent intake and outgo of a bit of air. Otherwise, we can't be alive. This is not a theoretical knowledge, nor is it a philosophy. It's a personal experience. When it becomes a personal experience, understood in this way, the way I have just suggested, one views oneself differently. This is a very important aspect of inside meditation. The insight that we gain from that may be profound or shallow. Something will definitely arise. The more profound, the more it will shake us. If the mind is watching this impermanent procedure of the breath, and gains that insight from it, it may become quite calm because it will realize that there's nothing to think about. This breath is my life. What am I thinking about? And it may become calm and stay with the breath. It may not. It may still have this sloth and torpor in it and 
not be able to stay on the breath and gain calm from it. Then the next step is to investigate one's thoughts, one after another, never the same, similar, but coming and going. They come and go like clouds in the sky, driven by the wind. Watch them. And you can see that there's nothing solid about them, that none of them stay around. So if you've watched the breath being impermanent and the mind still doesn't want to become calm, watch the thoughts being impermanent. This refers to the first part of this contemplation which we have just done, namely decay, disease and death and all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. All of that refers to impermanence. Impermanence is one of the three characteristics of the universe. In Pali, the T lakanas, T is three lakanas characteristics, which mean insight. Really true insight has to refer to one of the three characteristics. At this point in time, I like to stay with impermanence. It's the easiest one. But because it's so easy to see and too easy, too easy to experience, people completely forget about it. And yet, it's almost impossible, not quite, but almost impossible to argue about it. That too is possible if one has a very argumentative mind. But for most people, it is a given. But it doesn't have any profound implications. And this is what we can gain when we sit down in the meditation and watch the impermanent aspect of that which we think we are. In this case, breath and thought, first of all. As a contemplation, we can use either one of those, <clears throat> but the one that is very important to use is one's own death. It's guaranteed to happen, and most people don't want to know about it. If we think we want to know about it, and just say, oh yes, that's fine, that too does not mean that we really know what, we, what it means to no longer be here. It's not a death wish. A death wish is the other side of the same coin. I want to be here and I don't want to be here are both the same thing. Their opinion based on me. But to investigate how one feels about one's own death is a very important aspect of the meditative process because once we have accepted it to the point where it is just part of life, we can also see the moment-to-moment -moment death in each breath. And when we see that, 
we may be able to let go of all that thinking which is supposed to keep life going. And when we can let go of all that thinking, we learn to meditate. Therefore, death investigation, one's own death investigation, is essential. And it can be done as a contemplation in your individual meditation time, or if the mind is really disinterested at watching in watching the breath can do it in the meditation time, in the group meditation. It doesn't matter when you do it, just to do it. If you can visualize, it's very helpful if you can see yourself dead. If you have seen dead people, have been together with dead people, substitute yourself for that person that you saw. If none of that is possible for you, then Maybe you can remember a picture you saw. Or otherwise, you just have to think it. It is much easier if you can also see it with the inner eye. Because then it looks quite real. If we recognize the fact that each thought that we have thought is dead, and a new one arises, it's much easier to give them up. What do we need to have birth of new thought every single moment? Are they important? Are they world shattering? Are they self-revealing? Or are they... until you get to it by yourself. The bottom line is ego. There is no other bottom line. That's it. But if one doesn't get there by oneself, it's just theory. It doesn't mean anything. But when one sees it oneself, it becomes extremely interesting. And all problems can then be dealt with it we are dealt with in exactly the same way. And eventually, the problems are no longer problems because they show quite clearly it's just me wanting to have or to get rid of. Why should I spoil my life with those two aspects? Investigate it. If the mind is constantly get back, getting back, to the same thought pattern and by now you should know that same thought pattern that's the way to deal with that one until you have convinced yourself that that's not the way to keep the mind going you are able to let go of it this is a very useful way of dealing with problems in or out of meditation if they are of such a strong nature that the mind can't get, it, can't get off it if they're not the best thing to do is to let go over and over but there are some things that we are not capable of letting go so we have to deal with it in that way
when the mind is too excited and it does deal with problems or any one problem or several problems and it will not stay with the breath and we don't find the way to investigate the way I have just described then the best thing to do is take the mind off this completely and put it onto another problem namely one's own death that's to 90% of mankind that is a problem if they ever think about it most people don't think about it it has become far more common nowadays to think about it but the reactions are still the same or to the problem of the fact that we are completely dependent upon an impermanent air intake for our lives that too can be another way of getting the mind off the problem preferably investigate until the bottom line is reached it's extremely revealing because it reveals to us that there are no other problems it's all one and the same it's always me that's the only problem and when we see that we have got a glimpse of the second of the three characteristics of the universe the substancelessness of all that exists the glimpse has to come through the problem that the substance which we give everything makes arise we give a substance to ourselves the me and therefore we get the problems so if we want to see a glimpse of that second characteristic which is the goal of the teaching to see that then we have to see the problems that we have with the me and so if we have a nice fat problem that doesn't allow us to meditate properly we should be very grateful because we can investigate it to the point where eventually we see there is no other difficulty in life anywhere except that illusion that me it gives us that opportunity of course if we get nice and calm we will enjoy it more and we might be one of those people that goes through sukha instead of dukkha but dukkha is a very excellent teacher in fact it's the only reliable teacher it's the one that sticks around all other teachers come and go dukkha is reliable it stays until we ourselves have removed the cause of it so you have immediate benefits from the meditation good karma making antidote for sloth and torpor of the mind you have 
the ability for labeling and substituting, the opportunity, and as an inside method, watch the impermanence of breath and thought, and realize that only a disciplined mind means happiness. Nothing else spells happiness. There is no way that we can always get what we want and always get rid of what we don't want. Nobody has ever been able to do this before us, now, or in the future. But it's possible to have a disciplined mind and not allow the negativity. And that we have to have patience. Letting go is the key word over and over again. Now, I'll give you some time now to ask some questions or comments or anything that you wish. Yes. You said uh, the bottom line is ego. So behind me, behind the bottom line, I'm quite sure of ego. Okay. Um, in this way of uh, the way I have said it, it means the idea we have that this is a personal me and has mine, like my body, my mind, my house, my car, my wife, my kids. All of that is mine, my knowledge, my beauty, my wealth, my whatever, yeah, my sex, everything is mine and there is a solid person sitting inside this body, not necessarily identifiable with the body, but sitting inside and being me. Everybody has that. So with that me that gets up in the morning, out of bed and then does all the rest of the day, it has wishes this me and it has also dislikes and it expects that the world will comply with the wishes and not have so many of the dislikes come near one and then when one finds out the world has absolutely no intention of complying with anything then one first of all finds a scapegoat somebody must be somebody's fault because one's wishes are quite justifiable, but unfortunately all of them are ego-supporting, me-supporting. They are supporting our illusion that there's somebody here. And since everybody has the same wish, everybody would like their ego supported, nobody's interested in supporting somebody else's. And so we've got constant problems. Now, of course, there are a few people around who do have the, ten, the decency to support somebody else's ego once in a while by appreciating, by gratitude, by praising. But we can't rely on that. That person might not always be there. And then sometimes they might also change their mind and not be so nicely supporting. So this is the problem in a nutshell. And if we look at any particular problem, whichever it may be, and they're all the same, they just have different names, 
we will come to that answer as the bottom line. But we have to go through every single answer on the way. It's useless to say, oh yes, I know, okay, ego works. The problem doesn't go away from that. So what? I've still got the same problem because I've got the same ego. So every answer on the way opens up a new vista. It takes us out of that imprisonment in the imprisonment in our self-wish and self-realization and takes us out of that into a wider vista. Every single answer we get until we finally come down to the bottom line. By that time, it should be quite obvious that that's the bottom line because we have had so many answers on the way. So it is necessary to inquire into that way. And then we will see the answer. And if we get stuck somewhere in the middle somewhere, the answer is, but I've got to have it. Well, why? Or I've got to get rid of it. Why? Why do I have to have it? Why do I have to get rid of it? Why? The question is always why. And if one is honest to oneself, and the only way that such an inquiry can have any usefulness is if one is honest, one will soon see why. Does this make it any clearer? Uh, a little bit I start to work on it. Yes. <laughs> so another question. Yes. Yes, but it is the same. But it is a particular word and meaning in the Buddhist teaching. Insight is vipassana. The word in in Pali is vipassana, and which means literally translated clear seeing. But it's also sometimes used the word in Pali panya, which means wisdom. So insight is identical to wisdom. And we could say that it is the understood experience, which means that we have experienced it within, which is our heart faculty, the feeling. And we have understood it with the mind, within the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness, or any one of them. So insight is more than understanding. I mean, I can understand something that somebody tells me and still not gain insight. Insight really always is directed towards one of those three in some manner or form. If I realize that the bush outside is prone to birth, decay, and death, well, that's insight. Because that goes towards that, towards the impermanence of it. So it's a, a little stronger than just understanding. Okay, anything else? What else? The Buddha said that asking questions is one of the very important factors of gaining insight. <laughs> yes. Crystals 
Uh, what do you do with them? Look at them or what? Well, I don't know. Do, does it? Does it channel? What energy does it channel? The mind? And does it channel the mind energy, the mental energy? Does it help to concentrate? Well, have you had that experience? Because I was going to say, if you have a crystal, and if it actually helps you to concentrate, please use it. <laughs> I'm good, I never talked about crystals. But anything that helps you to concentrate, use it. It's, um, it doesn't matter, because, you see, these are all methods. And I said that already last night. We have to have methods in order to give the mind something to do, because so that it stops thinking and making up stories. But meditation starts when the methods stop. So whatever helps, that's useful. It's certainly not one of the 40 meditation methods that the Buddha taught. Nothing of that nature. It's not to be disregarded if it's helpful. Anything else? Yes. If I want to discipline myself, or if I want to be a Buddhist, or to be enlightened, is that the ego working? Uh, yes, but at least it's doing something useful. <laughs> <laughs> you see, as long as we have an ego, and we will have that until we're fully enlightened, we have to direct it toward that which is useful and makes good karma. In fact, we say that we practice and have the wish to become enlightened in order to get rid of all wishes. So first we have that wish, but in the end, of course, there are no wishes. So of course it is the ego, and everything we do has that underlying foundation of the ego, but we can do terribly useless things with it also and what you have described is very useful so it's certainly the better choice <laughs> yes you find difficult difficulty in uh, accepting that. Is that what you said? Yes. Yes. Um, I will talk about karma at length because it is a lengthy subject. Um, and uh, I don't want to just, you know, sort of answer that in with one sentence because it takes more than that. So I will definitely... Um, give a talk on karma and then when that hasn't sort of um, been quite clear yet you can ex again ask me then okay I'll first explain and then you ask me then.